gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. Yeah, I said, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique was perfect. These odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 sweet. is democracy manifest. Welcome to the Culture in Anarchy podcast. For more audio and videos, please subscribe to the Culture in Anarchy podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. And follow me by my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. If you'd like to make a small contribution to the show through my Patreon account, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. And if you haven't already, go ahead and stop by iTunes and leave a great rating for our show. We have just released our first edition of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine. The issue is available on our website, and print copies can be ordered through most online retailers. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non Part 9 Deferance and Buridan's ass. Continued. Teddy is Kodarbinsky, a Polish logician and an early theorist of a branch of praxeology that transformed into another line of investigation altogether, proposed a philosophical problem that aptly applies to the foregoing dilemma. He writes, Let us now consider the movement with which a hunter directs his gun towards his victim. In a given case, he directs it towards bird number M in a flock, but should he direct it towards bird number N in the same flock, he would shoot down precisely that bird. But then, by directing his gun towards bird number M, which he shot down, has he not produced the effect of saving bird number N, the fate of which was in his own hands, since he was free to direct his gun towards this or that bird in the given flock? The question is tricky, and the problem posed is somewhat difficult to answer. Does the hunter, in effect, play God? Are we not, as homo agents, the doers of everything that would happen otherwise if we should, in a given moment, exert some other pressure than that which we actually exerted if we were in a position to exert our pressure in some other way? 
Does reality, as it were, dissolve back into a mere probability when not under direct measurement? And is that dissolution back into the mere probability, not the predetermined courses of things? Does the flap of a butterfly's wing in Guatemala influence the collapsing of a distant solar nebula? Does the wave-particle duality affect other phenomena on a larger-than-quantum scale? Koderbinsky follows up his problem with another ontological question. Does not the hunter, in the above example, by directing his gun towards bird number M, produce the effect that his fellow hunter nearby remains safe and sound if he, the original hunter, was in a position to direct his gun towards him, the fellow hunter? It appears that Koderbinsky achieves the correct interpretation by rejecting the ontological paradox involved and the very notion that human beings are the doers of everything rather than the doers of one thing at a time. The very notion of being in a position to behave in some other way under given and fully defined circumstances remains a puzzle. The puzzle involved is one that involves knowing subjects, actors, historians, and philosophers looking back upon the hunter's teleological operation as if that operation were merely one of etiology, and as if looking back and learning from experience were not some action aimed at a future understanding of past events. Hindsight often does not take into account the specific alternatives foregone in the act of hindsight, and the last hundred years of historicist fact-gathering and literary studies has proven that even a half-witted Epimetheus can look back upon the hunter's decision and plot indifference curves and rationalizations for cost ad infinitum in order to rewrite history, or to colonize it for the puritanical PC headhunters of the egalitarian Jacobin Book Club. Unfortunately, the knowing subject who looks backwards upon a historical action from his imaginary intertemporal margin, without acknowledging that he or she is actually looking forward towards a future understanding of a past event, will fall into a pit of historicist paradoxes, the attribution of arbitrary value judgments to historical processes. Saussure fell into this same pit when attempting to study language from a macro perspective. The Marxian drowns in his aporia. If one abstracts from the elemental pressures of a situational decision, the expression of a value judgment that takes place at a certain place at a certain time under certain historical circumstances, then one can puzzle over the probabilistic outcome of events for all eternity, about indifference curves or about the immense unlikelihood that the event might have taken place. What is the probability, the theist often asks, that a world like ours could come into being without a giant teleological being to direct it towards its perfect placement in the solar system, neither too close nor too distant from the sun. The question poses a false dilemma. The probability that existence exists as it exists is 100%. What other universal schematic could the theist draw up that does not draw from the properties of existence as it exists, namely, the realm of time and space? What alternatives could the theist drudge up that do not belong to existence as it exists? What extra-universal knowledge could arrive at alternative existence as it might exist otherwise? Doubting existence de facto doubts what exists. It is reasoning from complete certainty to vague probabilities rooted in historical costs that arise in changes that the human mind requires for knowledge. What are nature's costs? Nature has no costs. 
independent of what humans wish nature would do instead of what it is doing in its purposeless motions. And therefore, the point is moot. A chair is sitting across the room from me. Well, it isn't actually doing anything. But for me, it is just sitting there doing nothing. The results of these mental puzzles are nothing more than a kind of speculative historical study that rejects the teleological operations that are always present in human action as such, so that the subject matter of historical study should even exist. The basketball fan wonders, What if I didn't get up to retrieve a beer from the fridge? Might not my team have hit that vital three-pointer that they missed at the buzzer? I shouldn't have gotten up to get that beer! The alternative cannot be re-experienced. We understand alternatives, even though we do not experience them. They seem more real where capital goods are durable and do not change form or disappear from the margin. If I select between two twigs with which to start a fire, I can go back and select the alternative foregone if the preferred twig fails to light. But of course, the former alternative is now preferred to its lack becoming unit N, where before it was unit N-1, and this is preferred to a night without fire. That three-pointer, however, is irrecoverable because the game does not allow for a replay, the introduction of a repeatable temporal frame. The existence of alternatives is a reminder of the a priori of action and the condition of scarcity in the natural world. We simply do not have time for all alternatives simultaneously in order to implement a grand universal plan for all six billion people on this planet. And yet if we refrain from coercion and aggression against persons and property, we find that we actually do have a plan that will allow all six billion people to pursue their ends in peace. In fact, that even the historian as a subject should engage in analysis the act of choosing, preferring, and weighing choices through logical analysis, always based on subjective value judgments projected towards a future, and hence an uncertain good, the historian would have to acknowledge the fundamentals of human nature as evident in praxeology. The humanities are unique insofar as they have certain roots, but the methods in those studies must be scrutinized for theoretical consistency. The school of economic institutionalists, and to some extent the German historicists, attempted to treat economics as a strictly empirical, non-theoretical science, and stressed that induction and historical fact-gathering were the only true economic methodologies. As we look back upon their endeavors, it now appears to those of a liberal temper that the Thorsten Veblens and Gustav von Schmallers of the world were only apologizing for tyranny, mercantilism, Prussianism, the prototypical welfare state, and sycophantic statecraft in order to avoid acknowledging the universal truths of economics that threaten tyranny and Prussianism. Federal Reserve Chairman and every Harrispex who peruses the publications of the Bureau of Labor of Statistics and the CPI for Economic Theories engages in the same futile endeavors. Nevertheless, human action bears out that a preference in action was made under definite pressures, not indefinite historical pressures sifted from the mess of historical facts, which the historian then parcels out like latent birthrights. The best biographers are those who challenge their subjects by highlighting why those individuals chose this instead of that, based on the best evidence available. The historicist and institutionalist had to engage in discrimination, making value judgments of relevance, 
which presupposes an a priori truth criterion, which we now understand through praxeology, even for strictly a posteriori methodologies. Historicism and institutionalism are both radically empirical methodologies that are undeniably self-contradictory, and those same self-contradictory methodologies are now deeply embedded in the fallacies promoted by the Jacobin Book Club in American and European universities under the auspices of a literary studies degree, and in some cases an economics degree. We might have wished that Karl Menger had eradicated such logical fallacies in the Methodenstreit, in which he schooled the ever-irascible inductive fact-gatherer Gustav von Schmoller about the proper methodologies for the historical and economic sciences, but apparently the Jacobin Book Club has neglected the history of economics to what shall prove its great embarrassment in the very near future. Praxeology is the time-invariant theory of rational action, but each and every individual rational action takes place under different pressures. Nevertheless, history is not planned or determined, even if the hunter in Kodarbinsky's situation happens to believe that his own history is planned or determined. If Kodarbinsky's hunter is a staunch Calvinist, he may very well believe that God planned the hunting scenario out in advance, and that the hunter is an actor merely reading the text of God's almighty plan. The hunter's end is reached without reference to individuality or individual decisions, and indifference overrides definite pressures that prompt his actions. We could view change from a Parmenidean framework in this world, examining change, denying that it is change, and then speaking about the change as if it were not change from our place in the Apiron. Is that not what happens in every creationist argument? Action that occurs in no space and no time? If the hunter in Kodarbinsky's paradox is capable of doing everything, then he is also capable of doing nothing. Even if shooting one of the birds results in the fellow hunter remaining unhurt, it also results in the fact that the engine in the car that they use to drive to their hunting grounds remains cool, and that the man-eating tiger in the bushes remains in his perch, ready to pounce upon the hunters. Furthermore, the fact that the car remains unused means that no gas is being used that the aggregate consumption of oil is temporarily in shortfall, and that the individual cruising the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the ticker tape of the New York Stock Exchange for a price index may make a decision to invest or sell in oil based on what he sees, part of which is informed by the hunter's oil consumption and savings, and so on ad infinitum. We cannot know all historical empirical knowledge but we do at least know with absolute certainty how we do know knowledge, namely the subject-predicate standard. I think that by reflecting on the methodological dualism that we require for knowledge, the mind-body problem, one of George Berkeley's few valuable insights into praxeology takes on the status of a truism. What is mind? No matter. What is matter? Never mind. In historicism, the individual is a mere handmaiden to indefinite pressures and indifference curves tied up in an historical movement. The spirit of the times and the historical record bears forward a progression of events that culminates in the researcher's own value judgment about what range of values and beliefs is germane to the mass of a people in a historical era such that historical destiny could be pronounced in order to explain the present stage of events as the inevitable outcome of history. Contrary to what such a method proposes, history is not inevitable, except in the sense that history is a record of past events that are indisputably final. Historicism, which is a kind of theological historical practice that attempts to predict the future from inductive fact-gathering, 
allows its proponents to play with variables at will, sifting through probabilistic values in religion, psychology, or art to explain an individual's decision in the historical record as the inevitable outcome of mathematical integers and the evolution of institutions through vague social forces. This, to me, has always seemed more like literary harrispication. A gutted sheep lies in the street. Someone calls a harrispex, a kind of entrails-reading diviner, and she arrives upon the scene in order to pronounce something about the future, not by inquiring why someone has gutted the sheep or how the sheep came to be gutted, but by reading the entrails scattered upon the ground. She does not inquire into intentions versus outcomes, expectations versus real results, but instead treats the guts of the sheep as an ultimate given, an ultimate end, which provides profound insights into the future and present of humankind. A passerby sees the Harrispecs in her entrails reading and stops to say, I saw how that happened. The sheep was run over by a lorry careering down this side road, and that sheep there got churned up in the wheels. The Harrispecs now sees a bunch of social forces converging upon this moment in time, this magnificent moment in time, which can be used to explain historical development, not an overarching group of ideas, morals, or theoretical truths. No, some other historical moment in time shall find its exegesis in these historical reverberations of vague social forces converging upon our poor slaughtered sheep. These social forces are, of course, only a cobbled macro-variable of opinions that the historian sifts from the meaningless variables of history in order to prove the present. Without reference to praxeology's a priori criteria for the study of human action, there is no guide to historical analysis. In order to proclaim a final end for an historical analysis that does not take recourse to a theory of human action, economics, which is necessarily critical because it can apodictically show where some people err in their political ideals, the historicist must take all of the infinitesimals of history in at a glance with all of their consequences or be aware of a principle that inevitably directs their result to a preordained end. The historicist thus arrives at a historical determinism to explain the actor's action as the undeniable pronouncement of a temporal fate, or geist, channeled through a historical avatar. This actually proves to be an epistemological doctrine, since it suggests that reason and logic are outcomes of historical precedent, and that history converges upon the mind in order to mold the age's characteristic intellect, such that objective knowledge in deduction should be impossible outside of those particular historicist trends. History makes no pronouncements, since history merely consists of facts that knowing subjects gather. Religion, psychology, or art may very well explain just why an actor's preference scale is arranged in such a way as to place pressures on the decision that an individual actually did make. Nevertheless, values cannot be sensed by empirical value sensors. So all that is left in the historical record is the fact that inaction has taken place, with biographical and literary artifacts that enable us to infer other probabilities. If Elizabeth Barrett Browning has an opinion upon the utopian socialism of a select group of Fabians in 19th century England, which is embedded in her poem Aurora Lee, then we must gather facts about those Fabians and compare them to Browning's presentation. This does not mean that Marxism is relevant to the case. It may be relevant, since some Christian socialists spotted Marx's error in the labor theory of value and wrote against it, 
and then after made attempts to distinguish their own welfare statism from Marxian socialism. But we eventually get off track when we lose Browning in those distinctions. Not all probabilities are equally tempting or validated by the facts. Filling in the gaps of the historical and literary record does not amount to prophecy, as Koderbinsky acknowledges. He writes, If we face the effects of a certain accomplished act, we are bound to assume that it was just univocally determined by some set of circumstances and that the result could not have been any other in view of that set of circumstances. listening to the culture and anarchy podcast please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com if you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list you receive access to free ebooks including the text for a rationalist critique of deconstruction and in march 2017 the spirit of market anarchy coming up later this year on the culture and anarchy podcast we will be debuting several episodic series first up the Shadow of All Doubts, in which I chronicle sketches from the history of skepticism and free thought by analyzing conflicts between individualists and both state and church. The other series that will premiere are The Heist, historical sketches from the world's gold confiscations, which begins with the story of King Philip IV and the Knights Templar and proceeds all the way through FDR and beyond. Another series, The Jacobin Book Club, Neoconservatism, A Requiem, and finally, a rationalist take on the history of literary criticism. Towards the end of the year, we will be moving to a work of philosophy and religion entitled The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, wherein I lay out the world's first argument from grammar. Atheists and theists may in fact both be incorrect, where it concerns the rational concept of God, insofar as the concept of a rationally conceived God arises out of a priori grammar. There's lots of exciting developments coming up, so please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. rewrite history as much as we desire, but George Washington crosses the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776 every single time. Indeed, the individual personality will remain for us as much a unique and unaccountable phenomenon which we might hope to influence in a desirable direction by such empirically developed practices as praise and blame. 
but whose specific actions we could generally not predict or control because we could not obtain the information on all the particular facts which determined it. Indifference curves, in short, may fill in the negative space around a human action or value judgment in the historical record, but indifferences in no way act as a deterministic influence on human actions, and no indifference can be of equal value with another indifference. Something was chosen, other things were rejected, George Washington is certainly no less admirable today because he was then unaware of what may or may not have lay beyond the banks of the Delaware on his march towards the Hessians lodged at Trenton. We may praise the man or we may blame him based on our contemporary alliances, but he always casts the die when the die seems to have been cast against him in favor of the opposing forces, but not by many of the men in his command who trusted his judgment. When the earliest literary scholars in the English tradition turned to biography, logic, economics, and history as the methods best fitted for the success of the humanities, they did so with the understanding that there was a difference between the history in which an author moves and the history that the author presents. The history in which an author moves has nothing to say concerning the validity of the author's value judgments, and an author's value judgments are not reflections of ideological truths. Perhaps Napoleon was a better general overall than Kutuzov. He was better at Austerlitz in 1805. But Kutuzov prevailed in the end and smashed Napoleon's retreating army in 1812. The only non-falsifiable theoretical framework is praxeology. Whatever literary record is left on file, the author, as the authority, is the final say on intentionality. But since intentions cannot be sensed with finite precision, interpretation occurs. Who was the better general, Kutuzov or Napoleon? That depends. What is the context, 1805 or 1812? Let us return to the paradox posed by Buridan's ass. The problem with indifference theory is that indifference cannot be a basis for action. If a man were really indifferent between two alternatives, he could not make any choice between them, and therefore the choice could not be revealed in action. The deconstructionist certainly believes that he or she triumphs in this revelation, because it seems to reinforce the free play that is presumed to be already extant or in operation, which culminates in the aporia. But a problem arises in the recognition that, as Marianne Rothbard writes, a problem important in the field of psychology may have no significance in the realm of praxeology, to which economics belongs. Psychology deals with the problem of how or why the individual forms value scales. And for this question, it is relevant to consider whether the individual is decisive or inclined to be indifferent between various alternatives. Praxeology, however, is a logical science based on the existence of action per se. It is interested in explaining and interpreting real action in its universal sense rather than in its concrete content. Its discussion of value scales is therefore a deduction from the nature of human action and not a speculative essay on the internal workings of the mind. Praxeology, which is a science of means and ends, proceeds from the action axiom to knowledge that human action entails values and preferences that precede actions already put into operation, based on the law of marginal utility. Applying this law to the paradox of Buridan's ass, the praxeologist discovers the glaring flaw in binary opposition that drives the entire paradox of undecidability. In the first place, it is of course difficult to conceive of an ass or a person that could be less rational. He's confronted not with two choices, but with three, the third being to starve where he is. 
even on the indifferentist own ground, this third choice will be ranked lower than the other two on the actor's value scale. He will not choose starvation. If both the left and right waterholes are equally attractive, and he can find no reason for preferring one or the other, the ass or the man will allow pure chance, such as a flip of a coin, to decide on either one. But on one he must and will decide. Again, we are interested in preference as revealed through choice, and not in the psychology of preferences. If the flip coin indicated the left waterhole, then the left waterhole was finally placed higher on the actor's value scale, as was revealed when he went toward it. Far from being a proof of the importance of indifference, the case of Buridan's ass is an excellent demonstration of the fact that indifference can play no part whatever in an analysis of human action. In the case of deconstruction, Derrida and his energumens propose a kind of semantic starvation within the realm of communication when communication occurs as interpersonal exchange, since deconstruction roots out the aporia, the moment of undecidability, where the equilibrium of indifference prevents human action and the selection of a meaningful value, based on historical empirical context and logic. This is the point where Aristotle's indifferent man flips the coin. He splits the semantic difference and goes on his way, but he does so rationally by consulting his mental and historical lexicon. Imitative craft, the literary professor decides, allows me to link this theme to Plato and Milton, which are two writers that we covered this semester and which these students will again encounter in other literature courses. Or the literary professor decides, Imitative craft allows me to discourse upon Marxism, since I have an interest in indoctrinating these students and the tenets of my faith, and so do my colleagues here at Emory University. Hence, I shall choose a Marxist interpretation of this passage in Browning, to reinforce capitalist exploitation theory which my students shall again encounter in classes taught by my colleagues. If we do not do this, then we may be out of our jobs very soon, as demand for Marxist professors declines and our tenure could be revoked, or we shall cease to find a market for our writings and henceforth be consigned to an echo chamber of ourselves. Up to this point in history, deconstruction has played at economics. How does deconstruction allow its advocate to choose between indifferences without singling out a purpose? Deconstruction cannot find the aporia, or the decentering of human action, without self-contradiction, the deconstruction of deconstruction, as it were, which precludes deconstruction self-identity, pas de méthode. Deconstruction is a methodology, and the post-structuralist method is a postmodernist incarnation of indifference theory where cultural Marxism irresponsibly flits around on an intertemporal margin of unrefined discourse. Deconstruction could only exist within the scope of psychology and the psychology of language, But psychology and psycholinguistics have had no need of deconstruction except within the verbose psychological machinations of the deconstructionists themselves when we view those writings as stream-of-consciousness journals aimed at the socialization of students. In a way, it is as if applied deconstruction were the attempt to say everything that a writer, philosopher, economist, or any homo agents did not say in a specific work, statement, or word. Deconstruction is the mind of God, which attempts to arrive at the vast enormity of innumerable indifferences tied up in the curves of various speech acts. While at times it may be interesting to view a piece of literature from a different angle, this in no way requires or presupposes deconstruction. Rather, it is a fact of human subjectivity and curiosity. 
I have often utilized the same subjectivist stance to drum up alternatives to the waves of humdrum post-structuralist readings taught by my graduate school professors. But if one were to pronounce that an historical investigation into the difficulties that the Chinese in Southeast Asia faced through government-mandated ethnic discrimination was too limited in its scope because it did not take into account the full scope of political events on the mainland where the Chinese were simultaneously a majority, the correct reply would be simple. Of course, the first investigation is not an essay on the full scope of political events where the Chinese are a majority. No doubt. The persecuted minority status of the Chinese in Malaysia might be effectively contrasted with the majority status of the Chinese on the mainland as as persecutors, but how could both be treated simultaneously in every phrase without running into non-existence or inflating the essay into a never-ending treatise? Deconstruction has prided itself on this point, since all constructive rational action has been shown to be situated within deconstruction's all-present non-structure. But this non-structure is now seen to be rational irrationality. That is, wrong, (laughs) by default. If we can pinpoint this binary opposition between minority and majority status of the Chinese, why can we not call this opposition into every statement? We could, no doubt, do so with regularity. It would be confusing, but it would be possible. Intentional Alzheimer's would be very confusing indeed. But for that matter, the essay concerned is not a speculative essay on the assassination of JFK, nor is it an analysis of sexual themes in Scottish ballads in the 16th century. I could call these themes in if I so desired, nor is the source text a theological treatise on the number of angels that might be determined with mathematical precision to dance upon a pinprick. I might inject these observations into the source text, but I should not be surprised that if I submit that paper for review, I get laughed out of academia. I am certainly surprised that so many were accepted by peer review to the vitiation of much academic journalism. We criticize a work of literature or work of criticism only from a theoretical standpoint through rational argumentation and logic. We may object to political doublespeak, we may object to the way in which historical empirical facts and figures are represented in an argument, and we may object to specific tropes, prejudices, and economic facts and fallacies. We may certainly object to prevailing left-right schisms forced upon politicized literature in American cultural discourse. But we cannot object to rational argumentation as such, since any objection is a rational argument. Some arguments are true or irrelevant, and others are not true, less true, and more or less relevant. All actors in selecting means for the achievement of ends have already engaged in argumentation through action, namely, by selecting this means I intend to achieve such and such an end. But as soon as we suppose that communication, as an action, has been undertaken by an actor, we introduce non-empirical datum, evident in the process of the actor's valuation as a guide and impetus to action through a prior deduction of the time-invariant features of action and we thus trouble the entire deconstructionist framework of undecidability and deferrance. There is no means to psychic communication for human beings at this point in time, of any distinctly racial or gendered way of knowing, and interpretation always occurs in the course of speaking, which can lead to misinterpretation on one or both sides of the conversation. As long as we remain cordial, open-minded, rational, and rigorous in logical analysis, 
The chance that we might split our semantic differences and prove truths or guide culture towards a better place where coercion and aggression are absent just may still hold out a bright promise of reward. We may seek after a mutually beneficial exchange or PC conformity, but we will not find much of a meeting ground between these two courses of intellection. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold time. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much money now that we could borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pockets. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. You are listening to the Culture of Anarchy podcast. We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas, but I never realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics, the wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for ten years. the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their track Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.